Hello. Uh, I don't have a witty intro. No? No. Oh, <laughs> but you're cool about it and you open with that, which is like post-structuralist comedy. And maybe that's what brings people in that they realize that... We've lost like eight listeners in this intro right now. It's <laughs> 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 like, what the fuck? Hello, everyone. Welcome to Radio Free Golgotha and this very special episode brought to you by the Mysteries and Virtues of Justina. That is Justina of Padua, technically, and Our Lady of the Rosary. And many other things that happen on October 7th. So today is uh, kind of following in our vein of Cyprian Tide. I felt like uh, we didn't necessarily get to talk about Justina much. We didn't because it's there's always so much emphasis on Cyprian. And we did mention her importance to Cyprian and the Cyprian narrative. But I figured it was a the feast day is still really quickly after the after their shared feast day. And so I thought it was a good opportunity to crank out another episode, even though at the time of this recording, the Cyprian episode is still not up. So hopefully <laughs> you're receiving both as a, as a lovely gift around the same time. Uh, yeah, so today is the f- feast of St. Justina of Padua, who is syncretized, conflated, and confused with Justina of Antioch. As many things happen in the Catholic world of just, it has the same name, so why are we celebrating uh, as a different entity? And Our Lady of the Rosary, uh, just because we are going into those topics today. So why don't I stop talking about which feast day it is? And uh, do you want to roll us off on who it's, what it's brought to us? Sure. Yeah. So we're mainly going to be looking in terms of saint at Justina of Padua, of which there is far more specific information than her counterpart or her other side, however you want to put that, of Justina of Antioch. Uh, this episode is also brought to you by the plant Angelica by the stone lapis lazuli, which I think is just the way of saying the stone, the stone that is lazuli, I guess, uh, by the magic that is rosaries, by the geomantic figure of Puella, and it's uh, similarly shaped uh, Odu. <laughs> it's morph- morphologically similar. Apparently. I don't know. That's an interesting way to put it. Uh, Otura. Otura. And the arcanum of the lovers as well as the demon. No demon this time, because it's Justina Day. And so, not today, Satan. Not today. (laughs) The demon is Al. (laughs) It's always Al. (laughs) It will always be Al. (laughs) Uh, It's always Al. Okay. And uh, Dead Magician-wise, just to round it out officially, let's officially name Justina of Antioch as the Dead Magician, because it gives us an excuse to absolutely talk about her, no matter... Apparently, our critics that I'm imagining lining up saying that we're talking about the wrong Justina. <laughs> no, they're both in our topics today. Ha! Uh, take that, invisible critics that I'm creating. Uh, imaginary critics that I'm creating. It's That's a Facebook tendency, right? Of like people that are like, if these people did come after me, what I'd say to them was this. Uh. This very like, let me sound the alarm on something that has only hypothetically happened. It's a good technique, but... Oh, it's classic demagoguery disguised as pedagogy. Those are fancy words. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, Justina of Padua the, uh, is worshipped in uh, northern Italy and uh, thus the Padua reference, which is gives us such greats as Anthony of Lisbon is more commonly known as Anthony of Padua, St. Anthony. Your boy, Tony. Yeah. Tony, Tony, come around, find what's lost and make him found. Uh I made it a hymn, like I've lost a, a man or a boy. Huh, interesting. And uh, Taming of the Shrew takes place in Padua. Oh, yeah. 
which is relevant for the video I posted recently that freaked a lot of people out where mama shrews are most are mostly blind and the babies are very blind. And so in order to move from place to place, they form a, a, a shrew centipede. Yeah, that was pretty adorable. That is like biting the tail of the one in front of you and it's the, and the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. But okay, so Justina of Padua is uh, an interesting figure because there are paintings of Cyprian. There are There's lore of Cyprian of Antioch, but not nearly as much about Cyprian of Carthage, who he is often conflated with. Right, right. And the images of Cyprian of Carthage. Most churches that are named in the Western Christian world for Cyprian are not named for Cyprian of Antioch, despite right. people's wanting that. Unless it says Cyprian and Justina, it usually is not actually meant for the martyrs of Nicomedia. In the Eastern Orthodox world, it is. And it is a far more common saint uh, in and more, more commonly known about. In the Hispanic world, yes, you have Cyprian, but absolutely the conflation is there at its full force of like, we don't know which one's which. And right, right. Let's just celebrate 11 slash nine days in September mm-hmm. to the mystery that is Cyprian. But Justina of Padua has her own feast day on October 7th and is said to be a third century or fourth century saint uh, who is so therefore contemporaneous with Justina of Antioch, who in, by some accounts is the disciple of St. Peter, which makes no sense because Peter did not live that long. But I love that in many references, and Wikipedia stole this from the Catholic reference, that historically it's not possible, yeah, but, yeah, but spiritually, spiritually. Yeah, I saw that reference. It's, it's like, oh, well, I like this, that one, a previous saint, a saint can your spiritual mentor, an mm-hmm. acknowledgement of this within Catholic catechism right there. Yeah. But that uh, oftentimes it's, oh God, his name, I'm going to have to look at notes for this. Uh, Prostissimus was the first bishop of Padua and said to have been St. Peter's disciple was her mentor. And uh, we don't know much about her historically, Justina of Padua specifically. Mm -hmm. And lots of lore gets talked about around her that just ends up conflating her completely with Justina of Antioch. That that in, by medieval times, there's that depicting uh, people in contempt, same time, clothing and depictions. And by the time you get to the Renaissance, she's actually a popular subject of paintings. She's a unicorn saint. Her virginity and her chastity is prized and that she fended off a bad sorcerer and the sorcerer ended up converting. And because of the narrative similarity, it just becomes Justina. This is the same Justina of Antioch. Mm. So there's a couple features there that I think uh, are interesting for some of what will later become her kind of heraldry in terms of her being renowned of noble birth. And so this idea of her chastity takes on this dimension of behind closed doors that she's already kind of, uh, if not officially, unofficially, or if not ecclesiastically, then politically cloistered. And she's also, uh, to to concentrate on the other best thing about saints, uh, their deaths, she's also another sword transfixed saint. So we have the, I, I can't help but think about how that relates to the unicorn, which is often depicted with her, the noble chaste animal with a pointy pointy thing that's also often depicted in its enclosure that is also its perfect garden. Yeah, it's cloistered. Right. Much like the unicorn tapestries here at the cloisters. The And just of Antioch in being beheaded as well as boiled alive yeah. is its own... That. Yes, yes, that the that they're attempted to be boiled alive, Dina and, and Cyprian, but through their ardent prayer, the water will not boil, which is a fascinating thing around both the idea of the heat of love spells, so the notion that your good prayer could could counter bestial or even supernatural love, after all the retelling of the same, yeah, exactly. uh, trope going on, uh, or indeed that the boiling uh, could be a boiling of hatred. 
and thus this again this tempering out or this uh, this diffusing of uh, an aggressive act by prayer is turned away and so yes they are removed out from the water that refuses to boil and uh, and then beheaded yeah Interestingly, what you make me think of flashing forward to is the lover's card and the angel on it is said to be Raphael, who is healing, is a healing, God heals, but to heal the agitation of the water brought on by persecution and hatred, to heal it to its natural state means that there's a a balance restored, which is interesting because the lover's card is not necessarily about carnal love there is a, a different love that is presented there much like the love of this rat for the water bottle that only <laughs> happens when we record now thirsty boys yes this is the youngest baby rat he is contributing to the recording however he best he knows how now let's just pause it there <laughs> all right so uh yeah i think there's something interesting there with Raphael. kind of it's in the lover's card itself of administering the peace uh the spirit to the lovers blessing the union which is Adam and Eve, which is the perfect mate, um, the idea of soulmate, Mm -hmm. and this type of lovely monogamous special born of the same clay. Um, Yeah, I mean, uh, that notion of the uh, smoothing troubled waters, I don't know if that relates to, I always felt there was something a little bit like birth mystery-ish, potentially, about uh, the lovers as well. Maybe that's overly Kabbalistic in terms of how Binar links to Tiferet, I'm sorry for my terrible pronunciation. The idea of the Zane being the sword and this idea of, of twinsies and it being the the solve that, that's paired with the coagula of uh, art uh, or temperance. And so, I don't know, something about the sickle that cuts son or daughter from mother uh, is there. And the idea of, of the broken waters uh, and healing that. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's spitballing a little bit. It's also obviously worth thinking about how that relates to the older formulation of the lovers as the, as a matter of choice, a matter of two choices, uh, these two options, door number one, door number two, um, <laughs> safety or excitement. Which yeah, has parallels to the even the Midrashic relation of Adam between Lilith and Eve. Yeah, yeah, that would be a great formulation, actually, wouldn't it? A return to a, co- a combination of the two main Marseille and, you know, RWS. Well, one can argue that in some Delicious. ways, since the tree with the serpent is shown on the lover's card, that it she actually is there yeah. in some form. That this temptation to knowledge versus completion and satisfaction in the thing that was made for you. The lovers has an interesting relationship between that. The triangulation there, the angel that's blessing them, that is a medium between God and them. And one of the things about Adam is that Adam heard the voice of God directly, which is right. its own uh, difference from many things. Uh, and his head didn't explode or nothing. Yeah. So recapping our, for those that might just be listening to this particular episode and not know who Cyprian and Justina are, Justina is credited with deflecting the advances, whether hired or self-interest, of Cyprian of Antioch, who was a mage, a powerful pagan magician, who sent demons to capture the heart or at least the hymen of Justina, and she used the sign of the cross and the demon is dispelled and it makes Cyprian recognize that there is a more powerful magic and he gives up his dastardly pagan ways and becomes a Christian. And there are, as we talked about on the Cyprian episode, uh, there's a lot of tropes here that are referencing uh, a very popular story at the time that we start seeing this. There's a lot of literature of this kind of Beauty and the Beast, the saint and uh, magician narrative. 
And there is the parallel drawn out to uh, Paul and Thecla and to other sorcerers. Uh, every couple hundred years, you get another sorcerer saint that is converted from his sorceries. And I think the, not sure why Cyprian of Antioch becomes the one that sticks, but certainly the lore of the book and what that becomes uh, perpetuates them as it goes. And there were many people for years, up until recently, actually, within the last decade, a lot of online articles would say that the Cyprian narrative was invented in the Middle Ages to satisfy courtly love desires and the resurgence of magic and the Renaissance and this type of thing made it the narrative. And we know that's not true, that we have early early accounts of the conversion and the acts of Cyprian. So it's it becomes this, it's an interesting hypothesis, but it's outdated. Oh yeah, no, the, the pendulum swings back from counter posts, post, post-revisionism, post uh, etc. No, uh, I mean, certainly that's a way of explaining why there are bits and pieces in the Middle Ages and certainly by the, the 15th century, 16th century, we've got a lot of poets wanting to talk about Cyprian or wanting to wave Cyprian like a wagged finger uh, at people <laughs> because to speak of... Uh, to speak of demonology in the church sense is also to have to speak of your expertise in things that really you shouldn't have any expertise in. No one has any business knowing this except the people that have business, uh, making sure that other people don't have business knowing it. And so he yeah, he, he definitely does have this resurgence, uh, certainly by the 16th century and uh, again in the Middle Ages, but it seems more like what we're seeing now is less about put, uh, pinning a specific historical origin tale on that donkey and more about seeing him having his wax and wane, seeing him branch forth from that big old yew tree and then do that thing that yews do where they push branches into the earth and those take root. And so you have this amphibious nature of his kind of appearance in... I would say that, the, yes, because you're a historian. As someone mm-hmm. coming from devoted folk Catholic family, he's always been strong, has never not been strong oh, as a yeah, historical yeah. figure and yeah, yeah. is the second to Jesus, basically, in some families. But, like, that side of it is important, too, that, like, Cyprian worship, Cyprian, and I do mean worship, I mean, we should say veneration because it's Catholic, but Cyprian becomes such a huge force, and it's because of his exorcism ability. Right. Hugely so that you want the one who knows how to diagnose because he's done all those things to people before. Sure. And I would distinguish from saying he went away till he came back, uh, which is clearly bonkers, to saying that what we see is fresh resurgences of him popping up in new contexts, I would say, uh, or at least uh, repeats, repeat contexts uh, and, and, and a, a sense of popularity and of uh, access to hearing him being spoken about in sermons and things definitely goes in and out of various fashions. But yeah, quite, especially in uh, Iberian uh, community and, and worships, this is far more of a continuum than it is any kind of like, oh, suddenly we remembered about him, obviously. And it, like like all, it is safe to call Cyprian a fad of the last oh, yeah. decade, but that the, the Anglosphere, the Anglophonic mm-hmm. sphere of magic, uh, most heavily uh, populated by... United Statesians and your countrymen, uh, secondarily just by population virtue. Sorry, we dumbed down your waters, but uh, that's just my my own annoyance at that is its own thing. Of uh, there's been masses still said to Saint Cyprian hugely in the Southwest, in New Mexico, in Arizona, in Texas, and it's because he's still a figure that is is engaged with and never went anywhere. And you can give them 
those people who are devoted to him and Justina in that way. They don't know about Theoctistus because they're not Eastern Orthodox. Right. It's rarely mentioned. Right. There is mention of the pupil, the third one who is significant, of the worker who is taking them on as patronage. And you are conflated with that what by people that know, yeah. which is its own thing. And also that they don't care about the historical things until it serves their argument. Uh-huh. So there's no... There's, if we're talking about saying he's invented in the 1500s uh, to serve a narrative, then they're like, whatever, that, that doesn't change my faith. But the minute you get the acts of Cyprian or the, the conversion of St. Cyprian, it's like, see, we knew it was earlier. Right. And that part is interesting too. Right. That's, that's often the one-way mirror of uh, historical reflection on things that you already have a cultural investment in, uh, <laughs> which is you know, something that... Uh, <laughs> it's all fun and games until you have to change my mind. Yeah, it was that cartoon about... Uh, and searches for confirmation bias. I knew it. Uh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think it's interesting also with the nature of syncretism that happens. Uh, for me, in studying of this, I think there's an interesting observation of the way syncretism has worked. And if we're talking about syncretism, we can talk about it on many levels, but there's masking, which is an active guising right. of a saint standing in for another saint, a saint standing in for a spirit, a, de- a dead person, uh, a god mm. that is done. But then there is also syncretism, which is less of a conscious act. It can be engaged with consciously through this masking, but that is often the start of it. But if you look at the history of syncretism, syncretism is something that happens to you. It is a dominant culture exerting itself upon a less dominant culture. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting about that is like, I can you can look at that, oh, I'm going to get hate emails, I'm sure. But look at what happened to Hoodoo. You had Hoodoo as a minor expression that used Catholic saints. Catholic Hoodoo is not the majority historically. No, no. And because a lot of people coming to the Hoodoo revival uh, in the last 15 years uh, are coming from a neo-pagan perspective, they love the idea of Dila Saint. So it's very great to have these things as opposed to just professing faith in Jesus and the Psalms. Mm. And so you get a changing of what hoodoo was by people that are adopting it. And the other thing is when you adopt something, you can pick and choose what you want to adopt. So you can be like, I want to adopt the Catholic side of it. That's the full Catholic side. So it provides an opportunity for Catholics that are interested in Christoconjure, that also people that are neo-pagan that are interested in utilizing the incredible pragmatism of hoodoo and what it is. And it's... uh, much like other uh, Afro-American uh, uh, Americas, I use that term, North and South American systems, the cultural influences are many, but it is predominantly an African-American uh, uh, worldview and point of base. It is culturally transmitted amongst African-American uh, culture and uh, those that are growing up in contact with it. So it, you get syncretism is... I had one teacher that used to compare it to like the myth of the mestizaje that like the indigenous mother, Spanish father, meaning the Spanish father raped the indigenous mother and you have mixed race thing that comes out of that. Syncretism is something that happens unconsciously. It is not by choice for the most part. Syncretism is the fact that in Cuba, although there may have been an active choice to put St. Barbara and Shango syncretically together through masking, that the children of those people do not see the difference between the two. Mm. St. Barbara in Cuba is inextricably linked to Shango. There is no way around it. So there is no way to to separate the worship of one thing from the other fully, because now they've influenced each other both ways. Right. In some houses, uh, Obalueye is pretty much exclusively referred to, at least publicly, as San Lazaro. Yes. And that's a cultural thing. And that's just also because it's uh, there's, there's a lot of 
you don't invoke the deity of illness. Right. So there's reasons for that, but there's just the cultural dominances of why do uh, why do we refer to serpents as 21s? You'll hear old school Puerto Ricans, old school Cubans refer to, they don't say serpiente, they don't say, they don't say culebra, they say 21, 21. And people would always be like, 15 years ago, I remember the discussions of like, oh, it's because it's El Eguaz thing. No, it's not. It's because in the Chinese lottery system, hmm. 21 was the serpent and it was right over the man's penis. So it was a way of referring to something culturally that people would know what you were talking about. Right, right. And there was metaphors with that, but you didn't want to say culebra or serpiente because it invoked what that thing was. Yeah, yeah. Plus it was also fun. It was slang. Yeah, yeah. And it's a way of saying something. Being in the know. So I just, I think it's important to distinguish the syncretism is not always something that is happy choice. Like there is a masking thing. It happens in many forms of spiritism that like someone says they're working with St. Clair. Are they really working with St. Clair? Are they working with a nun that was from a from her order? Are they working with something that uh, chooses to appear like St. Clair? That's for the person in that spirit to work out. Right, right. But the fact is, is that we know that could everybody be working with St. Clair in that way? According to some people, yes. According to other spiritists, no. Mm-hmm. They're individual spirits out on that mission. And so that syncretism, the same thing that happens as to one why one minor spirit might fall under the skirts of another spirit. Why minor deities uh, become epithets to major deities in right. Greek and Roman pantheons. And so with this, we get the linking of Justina of Padua and Justina of Antioch. It is not it is not likely that someone said, let me set up a cult to St. Justina of Antioch and, mm-hmm. and put it in a different form so that people know what we're talking about. And we get worship on the sly. Mm-hmm. It, it happened. Mm-hmm. And there's that side of syncretism, I think, is important to observe. That there are many people like, oh, I, you can associate this spirit with this saint. There's the thing where it can be that saint could be in line with that planet. You could list saints for planets. You could list saints for Psalms, which are previous to, to, to saintliness. But it does not necessarily mean that things happen organically in, in a communal practice. And I think now in this age of so much information and the readiness and the lightning speed that things happen and the interconnectivity, it's very easy to create canon based on like, oh, I associate this thing with this saint because you have a feeling about this saint and someone else associates it with this saint because the color green, like there's a clover on that saint's chest mm. and it's something that they associate. And it becomes a, I just want to promote the dissection of syncretism a little bit more uh, neatly mm-hmm. and to understand the different nuances within it because for some people, it's not a choice. It is a, a product of colonialism. It's a product of the rape of culture and the dominance of Western colonialism over other cultures that assimilate because of how syncretism works. Mm. So the difference in in using, having dialect shifts that move towards colonial languages in having folk Catholicism be the way it is of just, we incorporate things that are from native traditions with African influence and then divergent versions of of Catholic influence. And then all the post Vatican II, which is its own horrible syncretism that's had to happen of like folk masses, really? Anyway, uh, rant over, not, but for right now, uh, uh, which is, I guess, a really necessary context for talking about what goes on with uh, sh- hagiographic, whatever you want to call it, sharing, blurring, that one saint that did some miracle uh, inevitably also gets reported as a, another saint doing that miracle or doing the miracles of another saint. And so that's something <laughs> to bear in mind in any way, especially when we're talking about the quote-unquote confusion or syncretism or... Yeah. 
conjoining in some way or of linking of uh, Antioch and Justina and Padwin. Like we've talked about with the Lazaruses, like we've talked about with Martha being mm-hmm. the sister of Mary Magdalene or not. Right. And just in practice, it becomes something and the practices build up around it. And at a certain point, there is something there that is different from history. I mean, that's what we do to dead people. We recount them differently, right. uh, oftentimes raised to hero or villain status immediately upon their death. That's its own interesting reduction and syncretism. The mass culture determining the history right. is a, a force, a one-way arrow yeah. that is very difficult to fight. And when a culture only gives a specific shaped door for uh, that legion of memories to come through, and that's going to cookie-cutter shape the thing coming through. Okay, so what we really know about Justina of Padua is that she couldn't be the goddaughter of St. Peter. But what you're talking about opens up the interesting thing, because the church already acknowledges that Peter could be her spiritual father. That's who she prayed to, and that's who she considered the cornerstone of her faith. And so what's interesting about that is that uh, it, uh, it opens the door to exactly what you're saying, that a saint working through the ages and the power and the inspiration of another saint who also might be conflated with that saint in time because they were working primarily through that saint, which means the saint becomes like the Comte de Saint-Germain type of Mm -hmm. like, let's just keep on living or or the two Marie Laveaux of like one carries on the work of the other. They're magic, aren't they? Yeah. (laughs) And Um, and we get that explicitly with uh, Justina of Antioch uh, owing to the fabulous translation uh, from Matthew Barclay, good old lovely Matt, uh, where uh, the where Thecla is listed not simply implicitly as the acts of Paul and Thecla have story beats that mirror those or that are utilized, shall we even say, in the story of Justina and Cyprian, but that Thecla is considered the categorical uh, student of Thecla. Thecla is considered her teacher. It's explicitly said. You just said Thecla is considered the categorical student of Thecla. Oh, did I? Yes. Oh, that's interesting. The time is a flat circle. That Justina is, <laughs> is categorically said to be the, the student of Thecla. Not that she uh, appears in her own timeline and teaches herself, although that would also be That is pretty Star Trekian. I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> like, I've come back in time as your future saint self yeah. to instruct you on how to be a saint and how to turn into a saint because we need you in the world. Yeah, yeah. And like, oh, that's borderline your territory. <laughs> people. No, I just mean the, the scrying to figure out how to talk to people how to scry better. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, Which we this, the excellent book. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, okay, so continue on with Thecla. So Thecla... In addition to having a cool name. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or uh, Theoclea. Um, no, Thecla's better. Yeah, definitely better. <laughs> uh, 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 Paul, Don't mess with my names, Hal. Paul, Paul shortens it. She's interesting for a couple of reasons, and, and obviously I would encourage people to read the acts of Paul and Thecla, which are available in translation on those interwebs I hear so much about. She has some really specific <laughs> uh, cool stuff around be, uh, the uh, Potnatherian, around being a mother or, or, or a queen of beasts. Uh, her story involves, amongst other things, being thrown to lions and bears and the, the she-lion uh, refusing to eat her and making friends with her, which is, a, 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 I don't know, can't help but read it in terms of a sense of female solidarity. Like, we don't need to fight each other. Uh, really, we should be fighting the people that put us in the Colosseum together. Not that it's the Colosseum, but... Syncretism! Ah, there were Christians and there were lions, so it must be that. Yeah. Right, exactly. How the, how the story uses elements of what people can grasp at. The point where she is listed as being like her uh, teacher is specifically also when she uh, issues a righteous beatdown 
on the on, uh, this is Justina of Antioch uh, on um, is that the translation from the Greek directly Aglados yep yeah exactly yeah uh, the girl making the sign of Christ threw the raging man on his back upon the earth she obscured his ribs and face with her fists and tore his garments and let him go scandalized acting in the manner of her teacher Thecla and she went to the house of the Lord now there's a thing about obscuring the ribs is a is a specific act uh whether that's referring to some kind of like, whether that's the equivalent of like a specific wrestling move or like a sweet suplex or something like that i don't know uh exactly but um certainly the idea of obscuring his face with her fists um leaves very little uh to the imagination and so this idea of not just the meek discipline and devotion of a suitably pious lady the vituperative rage at that lady trying to walk through the market to church and and, and being hollered at uh, by the, the aforementioned Eglados. I like the following our lover's card reference there too of obscuring the ribs of the ribs in a manner the source of women. Oh. Uh, so I like this idea of I can't tell if you're obscuring your ribs with your fist are you giving him the rib back like go ahead and take it back I don't need <laughs> it are you covering the ribs saying like I don't come from this fuck off. Right. I, obviously adding horrific amounts of masturbatory fantasy on what this obscuring the ribs could be and it's probably something like a greek wrestling move but i do like the the mention of the ribs there and the adama coming from adam type of mm-hmm. thing which we also get uh in terms of adenic references or post-lapsarian references the final devil that the sorcerer cyprian calls to attempt to enchant justina of antioch is amongst other things one that claims to have corrupted adam in the garden and to have taught Cain murder, I believe, as well. He gives a, a very grandiose CV. As one would want to do when one is hired by a magician. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. We're talking about the sickle uh, and uh, the kind of children thing. But uh, Justina of Padua's feast of October 7th is also the end of the grape harvest mm. and uh, a traditional time in that region of Italy, which is... Uh, around Venice, of which she is the co-patron of, but uh, to settle agricultural contact contracts hmm. to make sure that they are over with and done by her feast. So I find that interesting. Uh, just obviously there's some reason that this woman is being elevated in this region uh, for this. And, and just talking with your wife over the years of the hugely Denisian uh, survivals mm. all, all over Italy in its in the various Italies, let's right. say, of different local worship of Peter and Paul as Dionysian figures, yeah. and Justina being the disciple of Peter is an interesting thing. Now, Paul, I know from the musical side is is the one that I was more familiar with. Uh, your wife saying there was more Dionysian related, but I like the plethora theory that there there are many saints standing in for this need. Yeah. The value centers of a community get shifted onto whatever is most needed so if you already have a fishing saint then peter makes a or a fishing god then peter makes a lovely appearance in your town and you gravitate towards him as the center of things right. and it's just uh the gun germs and steel of spirituality mm-hmm. is important to acknowledge and there's some sword stuff specifically i mean again i wouldn't want to speak for mal ever because uh, she does it so much better herself but the idea of paul and some of the dances done mm-hmm. being sword dances and this justina Again, being a sword transfiction martyr uh, is interesting to me. What I was thinking of the connection there sword-wise is because one of the things that I actually thought of the Jumantic figure as opposed to the Odu first, one because of Justina being a young maiden, so Puella becomes in my head of that. Mm-hmm. But Puella itself is the sword pointing down 
of mm-hmm. where it's the it's the reversal of the erect sword and it is the sword of faith right so it's the sword that the paladin holds in their hand yep. that looks like a cross and well interestingly enough on an episode dealing with Justina and her use of the sign of the cross it's interesting that it looks like a roman cross it it is 1211 one, one. Mm-hmm. and then to think about it and permutate it and percolate on it further of the corresponding odu which is otura and enifa has some interesting parallels with exorcism and asking for over overcoming difficulties and enemies and things like that so perhaps you good doctor who are more fluent in the geomance than i am could explain puella a little bit or not girl <laughs> it's not the Latin word. Don't translate it. Dude. It's not Google Translate. I can do that on my own. <laughs> it's uh, a figure uh, that mm, is always pretty much associated with Venus. It's Venus on a good day, as opposed to Emissio, which is uh, still sentimental, still romantic Venus, but Venus on a bad day, uh, shall we say. And so this good day Venus, uh, often associated with charm, uh, with... Yes, sensuality, but a lot more about uh, artisanship, about craft, about doing something sweetly that enraptures by its function as much as its form or its aesthetic. A figure often, not exclusively, because geomancers uh, be idiosyncratic, uh, with Libra. And again, a useful point about a cross, uh, a pivot point between two arms. Uh, The idea of Puella being beyond her associations as the feminine one, as the token girl figure. Mm-hmm. And so reading in the, the medieval patriarchy that geomancy crawls out of, it's that which is associated with women. So, you know, when it turns up in the 11th house, it's mildly good, uh, especially good for making friends with women. And so it's it's that, that easy gloss. But beneath that is the sense of the hostess and the idea of one who... Beneath that is the, is the idea that this is really being interpreted by men. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, yeah. and it's like to make the little girls appear naked before you. And the thought of like, could this figure be used by women to gain female friends? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't seem to... Yeah, it doesn't... Depending on the, the handbook, it doesn't seem to be emphasizing that it's not necessarily, at least explicitly, heteronormativizing, although obviously that's implicit in that. There's plenty of stuff that is just straight up also associated with stereotypical medieval women's business. So weaving um, a variety of of women's crafts, uh, as well as a host of the things that women are considered terrible about. So there's some handbooks that list gossip and other, again, stereotypically terrible things that that women are meant to do. So plenty of things that make it a genuinely problematic figure for modern diviners. But I think what is present there is this notion of hosting, of being not passively receptive, but of taking things in and being able to balance people out. There's an awful lot of stuff around matchmaking people, not because you are simply a sentimental romantic but because you are finding this person will help temper this person this situation needs to achieve equilibrium and as a result puella is also considered a kind of standoffish figure at points it doesn't get it doesn't expound a view of its own very often it it waits to see what other what other things are doing and then tries to mediate between them which is again how it it can be considered a an opposite and a counterpart to pua who is all about like no i have an opinion and I have the energy and, and I haven't done the reading yet, but damn it, I really think this thing. And great for love and war. Whereas Puella arguably uh, is 
uh, great for love still, matchmaking still, but uh, but a conversation where hopefully everyone gets to speak, where everyone is given a weighting according to uh, the hostess's sense of their their worth in in the contributions. So it's an odd one. I mean, it's also the the figure uh, form. The iconography is also sometimes just straight up said to be the mirror as well. If we think about it, less as a cross and more about a circle on top. Um, which well, again, as it's convenient for you. So so yeah. Didn't mean that to sound so bitchy. Um, <laughs> No, it, it, the more you're in listening to this current description and just the, the, the paladin sword, like there is actually something interesting about that metaphor, even though the paladin is a warrior and very stereotypically male, uh, there is this thing of him serving the church and yeah. God and therefore subjugating the male impulse to kill and kill with a point to discipline, to stand in the corner and make people behave, which is interesting. There's the side of it. It's interesting to think about that with the with the the sign of the cross, with the kind of reflexive thing that is the calling to mind of Christ's death, which on one very superficial level is the potential resurrection of mankind. But why, when you look at the cross, as far as like the intersection of horizontal and vertical is so interesting. And you have Christ hung upon the tree again. So the lover's card by having the snake upon the tree refers to the snake upon the pole, which refers to Jesus on the cross. Mm-hmm. And so you get this redemption that, that that Golgotha, where Adam's skull is buried and Jesus is buried there, that you get the sign of Puella actually raised very high if you could consider it the cross. And that this medium, this median point between things, between the world, the democratization of God as the veil rips and the Shekhinah comes out and goes across the earth and Eshu steals the breath or the devil, the enlightened pagans get their access pointed to heaven. And I don't know, there's something interesting about thinking of Jesus who is a feminized male figure who is given the spear of Longinus to give him the vagina while he's hung there completely in a flaccid state. The most submissive state you can be is being stapled to something else and, Mm. and not being able to get it get off of it. But it's interesting to think of Jesus as a Venusian figure all of a sudden, which mm. brings the, the Luciferian side, Tradcraft mystery things kind of coming in there and that Jesus on the cross is syncretized for some with Mahaziel in the traditional craft circles. So the idea that the witch father of the faithful gods in like Chumbly's uh, perspective or mm-hmm. uh, these rabbinic demons are there is, I don't know, all that's very fascinating for me. Mm. It's like I've taken spice this morning and I'm seeing through Justina and lover's card all the way through to Jesus standing there laughing back at you. The, um, in the dark place. In the dark place. The <laughs> place that we dare not go. Jesus, he is the Kwisat Sahadarak. That is its own religion right there. So there is a sense, I think, that Puella has a quality of tempering things, not by smashing them and being stronger than them, but by seeing what they would themselves undo themselves with. You know, giving someone, it feels very Aikido to me to rather than like trying to punch someone back to move out of the way or to allow them to trip themselves up. That that horrible cliche about using someone's strength against them is rather more the case of using their own inertia against them and being exactly where you shouldn't be you know, if you want to get hit and letting people overbalance themselves uh, or unbalance themselves by overcommitting to things. And the, the, the mild touch that tips the scales uh, makes a lot of sense to me. And so that idea then becomes less about, especially if we're, we're talking about exorcism, becomes less about beating down with a bigger thing, or it becomes about knowing that the biggest thing around is the ground to hit someone with. <laughs> and so all you need to do is slightly unbalance them uh, and not be there. And this, I think, yeah, this makes uh, a weird kind of sense to me, at least. And I, I can see Puella having that quality of uh, 
not turning things away or, or triumphing over them, but of uh, of helping them around the point and out the way they came, slingshotted by their own inertia. Reversal work, shall we say. I mean, if we take it and encapsulate it in a way that I like to talk about figures in that way of it being the explanation and the means, both, of one's demise through uh, inertia going this way. Which is interesting if you consider the sign of the cross like a memento mori in the air of like, you're going to die. Like, yeah. like this is not worth it. There, this is not the Justina you're looking for type of thing of like, can can there be that dimension to it? I don't know. I'm just I'm permutating on it. Well, she certainly said in, in, the, in the translation, in Matt's translation, that she seals her body. And that, that to me feels less like a simply physical act and one of including that memento mori. That like, I am scheduled to die, but not yet and not mm-hmm. by your hand. Or even if I am scheduled to die, I'm, I'm fine with it. Like you don't, you can't use the threat of death over me. Right, right, and that's it's like it's not even not by your hand. It's like if this is the time, God will choose it. Yeah, and she and she does. She uh, the, that that's uh, another uh, myth of their martyrdom is that uh, Cyprian thinks that she's going to be terribly upset uh, by watching him die, and so asks for time to pray so she can get killed first. Mm-hmm. And she apparently sticks her neck out joyfully to be martyred. So yeah, she's again the arguably the more badass of the two if we and the sealing of the body with the sign of the cross too like the practice of what that is in like when you hear the gospel and you seal the head the lips and the heart like actually doing the sign of the cross with a thumb not a full like forehead what is it spectacles testicles wallet watch mm-hmm. but to actually do small crosses over the orifices of the body as mm-hmm. it's done when you're anointing the sick or when you're praying or doing olympia or things like that mm-hmm. so the idea of sealing the body of like you cannot get in there's no way for you to get in right. like if God wants to take me, God will take me, mm-hmm. which is its own interesting thing there. I think the means of one's own death, if we, <laughs> morphological twin of Puela tu Otura, mm-hmm. uh, one, two, one, one, has a, a patakin anitan of the squirrel being called the chatterbox. And the squirrel goes for divination. And uh, the oracle says, you talk too much in this sign when it falls that you should not talk you should not tell people the bad things that are happening to you and you should not tell people the good things that are happening to you because people are listening and you are naive and your desire to chat and to talk as a means of connection and gaining notoriety for good or bad is going to be your undoing that it is the mouth of the chatterbox that kills the chatterbox and it's evidence in the story that when the the squirrel goes home he tries very hard to follow it but his nature is too scatterbrained and too chatterboxy. And he announces his wife's delivery of twins, of, of Ibeji. And this is, of course, a miraculous, wonderful thing. And he wants to tell people. And uh, he announces it from the treetops of, the squirrel family now has twins! <laughs> and lo and behold, in some recollect- re- recountings of it, it's a, it's a human, and other recountings, it's another animal that comes and realizes there's a, a full tasty meal now. And goes and takes the squirrels and their twins and puts them over the food. And the chatterbox has been its own undoing. That there are times where broadcasting your own good fortune is not the best thing. Right. There are times for you. I mean, it battles against the individualism that has heavily influenced Western predominant operating philosophy, which is I should be able to speak my truth at any time. Mm. You can, but there are consequences. Mm. So one of the things we battle with in this kind of contemporaneous Western. Uh, world is that we like to free our, pretend that we're free from the consequences of acting and thinking however we want. Mm. And if anybody figures out how to be free from consequences, you, <laughs> you've unwrapped a greater thing. But it's one of those things, again, of like of choice and agency and what it is. And my fascinations with that thing of like, let's say you like to be naked all the time, but if you're naked in the street, it's a choice. You should be able to express yourself, but you will be arrested mm. and you could be imprisoned and 
never be allowed to work in a, in a public job again because you've now been indecently exposed in front of minors and things like there's a, there's a sense of practicality yes of of not just what should be the case but what is the case and the prioritization of the, those results and the other thing i think that's interesting about the kind of moral philosophical teachings and uh, discussion of uh, of odun is often that it doesn't simply say bad things happen when you do bad and wish to do bad there's an awful lot of in trying to do good, you can also undo yourself. Yes. You know, the, 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 the squirrel there is proud and uh, in, in not simply a pride before fall, but pleased and wanting to share his good fortune with the world and, and wanting to uh, be wanting to speak something good uh, to, to others. Uh, I'm reminded of another patekin in which the monkey is told not to help people so much. Uh, I think it's I think it's a monkey and he ends up trying to help a scorpion or something out of a pit. And the scorpion stings him, and it's uh, uh, so. It's, it's again a version of don't trust scorpions, or at least know that scorpion is going to scorpion. But there's also a thing <laughs> about he isn't doing that because he's an idiot and he wants to die. He's doing that because he wants to help people, and similar things about sharing food and and those kinds of concepts. Well, it, I think uh, Othura in many. I mean, and you have to understand that the agency of Odu being oral tradition is that in some towns, one batakin, one one itan might be told under one odu or another composite or and move around. And they might be emphasizing different things because they're the same patakin told in different odu will be emphasizing different qualities of it. Mm-hmm. But for instance, um, Otura is one of the places where you read about the distribution of heads by the divine appointed messenger to distribute heads, which is the crab. Mm-hmm. And the crab, in trying to make sure that everyone got the perfect head, forgot to give itself a head and therefore curses itself. And mm-hmm. it cannot move forward. It moves laterally and gives itself a hard time in trying to do what was appointed by God in trying to do well, but didn't think to look out for itself Mm. was selfless and therefore cursed itself, Mm. which is an interesting vantage into Yoruba philosophy, which is directly at odds with Christian ideals of like, no, 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 sacrifice yourself until you actually sacrifice yourself. And this idea that like, you can't be of help to anyone unless you're taking care of yourself. Like there is still the need. Justina still ate. There are holy anorexics though, and that's its own thing. Oh yeah. But there, the the body will fail at some point. And the mortification of the flesh is its own subject within Christianity and Christian magic. But it's not the only story. It is not the only story. And the other side of it too, is that the thing with Odu that is, you know, people often have reactions against the the coded morality that's coming out of it, is that this is an Odu that can fall. Another Odu can fall that should say, you should not be humble. You should should be announcing your victories. There might be another one that's like, stop talking in general, because this is one of those Odu of like, you don't know who's listening right now. This is not a good time. This is an Odu where you are supposed to fear God above all else. It's an Odu that announces the arrival of Islam. That often there are composites in here that tell you you should convert to Islam. That this many gods thing is just scattering for you. And you should be quiet and focus all of your energy on the one God. On the God that does not incarnate, mm-hmm. which is the thing. So uh, most of the gods incarnate, but Olodumare Olodumare um, does not. So I think there's some interesting things there that come with it. And, you know, my caveat on these things is that I limit myself to what I can find online or in public domain because I don't want my godparents coming and slapping me. And I, I think that there are, even beyond the fear of repercussion in that way, it's just the spiritual repercussion. of a, There are things with Odu that are, for one, I'm not a Babalao and this is an Odu that technically I shouldn't be reading because this is one of the higher ones. But also... There's enough out there in the public domain that can be discussed that doesn't have to be with like insight that is gained as priest or from talking to elders and betraying that source of confidence that happens when you are apprenticing someone. Long explanation short, uh, there is uh, an oriki 
that I found online that was interesting because it reminded me of the sign of the cross with Justina mm-hmm. of using Otura, which talks about the overcoming of great obstacles and great enemies mm-hmm. if you place your faith in Olodumare, mm-hmm. not in tangible other forces of divinity, mm-hmm. but in the purpose that was given to you by God, that in- indwelling breath and animated spark of the thing that unites us all. Doesn't mean it's the one God, but it, or let's put it this way, to to borrow the phrase I'm fond of, to paraphrase it, Olodumare is one but not in counting. There is a unity that is expressed through Olodumare, especially post-colonial influence from Islam and Christianity. What Olodumare was viewed like before that is up for debate, and many people do like to debate it. But okay, Onoriki from Oturameji. Otura the comforter and disruptor, Otura the comforter and disruptor, Otura the comforter and disruptor, please hear me begging you to destroy the power of those who speak hexes over me, destroy the power of disruptive elemental spirits, destroy the might of enemies known and unknown, destroy the power of bigots, liars, and hypocrites, and protect me from all those who speak and think bad of me. Otura the comforter and disruptor. Obviously an English translation, biased, of course, on a part of translator to to say whatever those phrases are. Mm-hmm. I will footnote that. Not my translation, not something handed to me by elders, something handed to me by the eldership of the interweb. But <laughs> still, I find that interesting that in, in, it, in its assignment to Otura in that way, that using this thing that disrupts and that if the evil announces itself in this sign, this sign allows the power of, if it announces itself, you now have the power to overdo it yeah. or overcome it mm-hmm. because it has announced. Mm-hmm. And this in this sign, announcing is bad. The, the person must fear God. That, that means moderation. Otura, like many Odu and anything interpreted through Ifa, is going to talk about moderation. Don't do too much good. Don't do too much bad. Don't do too much loud. Don't do too much quiet. Like That's the key message of Ifa all the time is moderation for long, peaceful life. Not moderation if you want to go out in a blaze of glory and like Thumb and Louise it <laughs> or, you know, Club 27 or whatever, whatever your version of burning your candle at both ends is. But yeah, I found that particularly wonderful in its parallels to like Prez to San Desasador, who is St. Cyprian of, yeah. of Break this thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and you know all the curses. You know all their cheat codes. You know how to take them apart. And with Otura Meji being what it is, if it is like a cross, not just a mirror, or it's a mirror that is a cross, you have it side by side because there's two of them. It's a Meji. So you have the cross of Justina and the cross of Cyprian and this nice permutation in this wonderful way that should never be perpetuated as a doctrine or anything like that. <laughs> um, oh, God. Uh, what being your own undoing there it is mm-hmm. I will be remembered for mixing all these things up as opposed to just finding them fascinating that's some shit right there uh, <laughs> the crowd that calls for your coronation will call for your beheading uh, rosaries on that too if we're talking about crosses and the power there and the power to the rosary as lasso and a noose is a fascination of mine a cross that hangs from a circle yeah a, another Venus Venusian transmission which is uh as you noted a a, a later development it's the last millennium it is not an early church practice that it is legends of dominic being handed it or the 1200s of that's when he was handed it by our lady of the rosary whose feast is also today but our lady of the rosary is also known as our lady of victory and it's a conflation between just it's a tribute to the virgin mary as a provider against arming you against heresy and heretics, arming you against people who are seeking to destroy Christendom. Yeah, I mean, there's a specific instance of that yes. as well in general. So Dominic is supposed to pray for a means, a special means to convert all these damn heathens. How do I reach these kids? The Albigensians, uh, yeah. Right. And How do I reach so, these kids? And so the uh, the vision of, of this particular Mary gives him a, a rosary and then it has an extra boost in the, was it like, 1570s with that yes. naval battle and it is attributed that this naval battle was miraculously won through 
the prayer and the use of rosaries uh, by so many good Christians. And so it is affirmed as a thing. And then I think between maybe those dates, the Catholic Church sign off on it as as it being uh, an officially okay devotional tool. Yeah, there seems to be, by the 1500s, there seems to be a, a huge common practice to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it identifies you as specifically a devout Catholic. It is, you know, starts to be the tool of the little ladies at that time, I'm sure. But also the the legends about Dominic are from that time period too. Mm-hmm. So it becomes this kind of calling another saint to power and crediting your your elaboration on the tool to a previous saint, which is, of course, footnoting. It, yeah. Let's talk about it as, as saintly footnoting, as opposed to saying that it's lying. Uh, that's that's interesting because there are, there are instances in terms of looking at the history of the rosary where they're examining knotted uh, chords and saying like, yeah, it's kind of the same thing. I mean, it's a, it's a counting tool. They're praying on it, kind of. Sort of, but I mean, yeah, I think that's worth pointing out that the rosary both has a very specific and arguably slightly more recent than we'd expect kind of history and instantiation. Or at least the and codification and the, and the yeah. proliferation of it as a certain set of prayers, because you know, we were always taught in CCD that there was actually no standard way to pray the rosary. It was traditional to pray it with our Father's glory be his Hail Mary as the Apostles' Creed. But this was not the only way. And then you get certified chaplets where the church has recognized right. alternative prayers to pray on a standard rosary. Right. Or a different architecture of the rosary itself, as opposed yes. to five decades with the Our Father Bees and the three hanging off with the two additional Our Fathers, that you can make additional shapes and things like that, which are all the rage in the 1900s. Yeah, I was going to um, say, the Mike, we've just had Michaelmas, the official Michael chaplet. Mm-hmm. The official, quote unquote, is what delivered in the 1800s as well. Yes. And then the Chaplet of the Dead that is fairly common. A lot of these are eight, 1700s, late end of 1700s, but mostly 1800s, 1900s. So you get these devotions in this way. And the rosary is interesting because it's the rose garland. It is an offering of roses mm-hmm. to Mary. It is a way of offering when you have nothing else. You have prayer. You have your breath. You have your desire and your time. And this means of the mysteries of a rosary. And a lot of people, it it shows uh, an important lesson in ritual magic for me. Because there are people who have a hard time memorizing things. But as an actor, you you know that there's only certain things you can do when something is memorized. Mm. And memorizing the prayers of a rosary, this is 101 rosary. What you are supposed to be doing is, is meditating upon the mystery of the rosary that is announced for that decade. So you have the space of an Our Father and 10 Hail Marys to think about something that happened in the life of Jesus. And this side of things, which is often co-meditated on with a personal parallel in your own life that you are struggling with that mirrors that at the time, is the power of the rosary to make it a tool to not only say a battery of prayers, which is like coinage in a way of like in confession where you cheated on a test and the priest tells you to do 20 Hail Marys and three Our Fathers and go forth and sin no more. And okay, that is the battery, but what do you do with those prayers while you're doing it? You're supposed to be meditating on how you won't do that sin anymore. Right. But it's quantitative merit. Right? Yeah. It's, it's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an actual number attached to like yes. how many you need to do. And certainly if you look at it, the, why 10? Well, come on, there's the, the fingers and this based on the body already that the Our Fathers become the fingers of one hand. There's five Our Fathers and the five decades of like, okay, you can count with the thumb and then you count with the index finger and you go through that. The 150 Psalms that monks are uh, meant to be saying on a daily basis. 
not men. Many well, you can't be a monk and not do it. That's the liturgy of the hours. It's they are doing it because they're doing it as a group. And if you don't show up, you're going to get in trouble. But there's also something about breaking up the day in that way. If my experience with the Abbey of you work for two hours, but you and they don't work hurriedly, but they don't delay. There's no oh okay everybody we're doing no just do your job because you only have two hours because now you have to go get cleaned up and do the liturgy of the hours. You've got to go sing more psalms, and so it's interesting of breaking things up into manageable chunks yeah. and moving on. And just knowing that that's what you have to do. And then also, what does it bring to praying the Psalms when you've just had an incredibly difficult time with the potato hoeing mm. and now you have to go sing and do a Psalm that like, it's going to add new insight into what that Psalm is mm. and to keep on doing these that over the course of the week, you've prayed all 150, but the seasons of the year start doing it much like they talk about Ramadan being moved in the, in, in conjunction with the solar year so that because it's attached to a lunar calendar that eventually you will experience the fast through all periods of the year. Yeah. as you age and you will see the differences there what is the struggle when daylight is much longer what is the struggle right. when daylight is shorter and i don't know i think all that is interesting the mysteries of the rosary the rosary is a profound tool it is possible to to lasso wonder woman style uh to a petition in that way and to demand someone speak truth because you have pray the rosary in front of them and 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 see what this is there are many ways to pray a rosary and that there is a lot of catholic folk magic that is around the rosary and the various chaplets and how a rosary is handled which finger you're using how you carry it on the body what parts of your body it's touched to all these things that from a prop perspective they see that as idolatry still and it's interesting because you're praying to mary and there's these things but that entire access to catholic magic is not often talked about because it's still one of those things of like it's oral tradition taught to you by little old ladies. And that stuff is fascinating because there are saints that are prayed, rosaries are prayed. And certainly it's the same rosary, same prayers, but there's different mysteries and there's different ways of holding it. The fingers change, the position of the body changes, which direction you face, all these different mm. things in relationship to the altar, which rosaries can be said when there's six candles burning versus two. Mm. Is the tabernacle open on Good Friday? There's certain rosaries that you can say only during the time when the tabernacle is open. These feel like additions to, to uh, rosary practice that might be considered magical or even sorcerous. Uh, the ones I'm more familiar with are things like taking out uh, and deliver us from temptation from the Our Father or not completing it and using that as a trap that's laid for things to come in. And so the, there are notions of actually converting or I guess from an ch official church perspective, corrupting the rosary prayers. But there's, there's no way to corrupt them when there are no actual standard rosary prayers. Mm. There is no way to actually pray the rosary officially. There is a recommended way. Okay. So that's the side of it. And the rosary has always been sorceress in the sense that it's you're trying to manipulate victory from the Virgin Mary to overturn and correct heretics. This is There is no division between, in a practicing Catholic mind, between prayer and sorcery in that petition. You are still exerting your will. You're still saying, if it's the will of God, but God just happens to be on your side. So the manipulation of this, also the recitation of certain rosaries at certain times, might have things attached to it. But I also know as a devotional practice, that's just what you do because that is the time period. Mm. You say this rosary in this manner because that is what you do during the opening of the sepulcher in this way. This is what you do during the sign of, when you're doing the stations of the cross, there are certain rosaries you can pray at each station if you are walking through them. So if you're in front of the third station, there is a way to pray the rosary in certain cultures, in certain traditions mm. that you do that. You might not even be asking for anything because the first staple is recitation. The first staple is do these prayers which is, again, not official, but still inherited and still certain in that way. You get the intercession of now the Lord's Prayer, uh, Lord's, uh, like Lord's the city, not Lord's Prayer, not the Our Father, uh, but the Lord's, but the different ways of 
doing this, there is a blur between devotion and a blur between the fact that you can use rosaries as a bargaining chip of, you know, I will pray 70 rosaries for you, um, to you, right. with you, however you want to view one is doing that with the saints. Mm-hmm. And that the saint is granting the request and this is your payment, right. not just the battery of prayers, but the sacrifice of time, which is tied into it. But also the reflection that a rosary, when you go into a Hail Mary, that, you know, the recitation in a certain way, and if it's done communally, different areas do different things, but the in like in Mexican culture, we'll call out the first part and the second part is said by everyone else. So there's this rhythm that starts happening and this you're being led through it so that you can participate communally in viewing the mystery. Right. So there's a, a biblical passage read, which is now done communally, which was not done when you're doing it by yourself. Right. And saying like the mystery of of or the the Servite Rosary, right? The joy the sorrows of Mary. Oh right, yeah. And the Mata Dolorosa. And, and going through that way. Mm-hmm. Um, this is an act of devotion to a specific aspect of divinity. And that this is a sacrifice of time and effort and breath and intention, but it's also a space, as you say, if it's two or four or with the saint, it's also a space for further meditation, reflection, uh, communion with that saint. Uh, as well. So the the idea of paying for their help by spending more time with them is interesting and highlights that there isn't just one, there isn't a simple utility to this kind of, it's hard to make a simple results magic, quote unquote, <laughs> out of uh, out of that. The result is doing the thing. And then the, I like the debates too on whether or not you can wear them because of course you wanted to and you always felt like it was, I mean, it's a freaking necklace. It looks like one. Like what's the, I realize it's a counting device, but it could have been just a rope. But What's the strong argument against wearing them? Oh, like when Madonna wore it, it was considered blasphemy and she's raised Catholic, but of course it's Madonna. But like, that was a thing. You wish you shouldn't wear it. It's not jewelry. It is not jewelry. It is a prayer device mm-hmm. technology, but they were worn. Mm. <laughs> Why would you put something in your pocket that's going to fall apart when you slap your thigh or something like that because the chains fall apart or whatever it is? Mm. You know, monks are wearing theirs around their waist or around their neck. It's because this is you're using your body to carry the things that are important for you. Right. The idea that you know it has to be blessed by a priest, or as other people say, like actually you should pray on it a certain number of times before giving. There's all these local variants and cultural variants of what right. they are. Right. But I still think the the interesting thing of it, right? You're you're wearing a cross over your solar plexus when it comes down to it. And yeah. interestingly, when you wear a rosary, it is the circle over the square it is in a form puella and the venus glyph in that way the mirror of reflection which is interesting there i mean i can certainly see the idea of wearing something around your neck is also for instance explicitly the not just thing you meant to do with magical amulets but or talismans but also the chief external use of what we would now call magical remedies for external use only <laughs> medallions right that which is, is said to draw the poison out of you i love the idea of cutting your skin and putting a, a medallion underneath it though, for curio use only right right, right. Uh, and so this is still considered this isn't like oh again blah 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 conversations about the history of magic and medicine the admixture of those now distinct categories shows that there is efficacy in wearing something specifically around your neck close to the heart and also yeah being the bridge between head and heart so for sure i mean the the very act of of wearing it like that would also rub some people who wouldn't want people having access personal access to you know magical or the belief that someone else denigrating or it's not even necessarily i don't think it's restricting access the critique was is that you are not devout you're not wearing this you're not praying the rosary you're wearing it as ornamentation and jewelry which is the antithesis yeah. you're being a, a false believer you are presenting a uh, you're wearing the outer sign of something but not actually believing it there we go yeah and and like that side of it is interesting too i mean yes you don't necessarily but like 
anyone can make a rosary out of out of out of some knotted thread. Um, even there's there's a rosary knot that is actually used of how to wrap it a certain number of times that it makes a substantial bead-like amount. But uh, oh, the other thing with Our Lady of the Rosary, it is the syncretism in Cuba for Dada, who is the sister, according to some brother of Shango, and is paired with the Orisha Bayani or Banyani, depending on who you're talking to. Bayani is uh, the crown and the the right to rule and the authority of leadership kings. Mm. And Dada's firmly in Shango's compound, the network of deities that are surrounding him. Yes, it is a, it's a Shango-centric deity. Mm-hmm. It's a physical descendant of, or same family member, like literally the sister of the historical Shango. Mm-hmm. There's uh, the praise poetry that implores Dada not to cry anymore after Shango's death. Mm. And you know, the, there's a lot of crying after Shango's death the niger river is formed by oya's tears in the mythology so it's um it's an orisha that is not talked about a lot because it's a minor orisha and people argue whether it's male or female and i love an elder that i was uh, friends with maria who would say like this is debating the sex of the angels like really after a point like they're neither male or female on the level that we're talking about them mm. they're historical exemplars of them there are priests there are exemplars of them and the mythology presents them in a certain gender but like at the level we're talking about they are neither male nor female they are god and that is a an interesting or a, 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 a healthy perspective to remember when people are like swearing left and right that there's 617 lotus petals on this particular right path right, right. so is there a consensus around how dada comes to be honored uh, on this day or through this actually i don't know some sort with the our i don't lady know i just rosary? i just know that it's our lady of the rosary i don't know if it's because it's our lady of victory as well i don't know if the completion mm-hmm. with our lady of victory there i i Anybody know, please feel free to, to school me on that. I just, I've always found it fascinating because the date has significance for me otherwise. But the the Justina and the rosary overlapping there with this Orisha that is rulership and self-rulership, especially. Mm-hmm. The, the Orisha system is so heavily bent on how to help give you agency to rule yourself as a king or a queen in your time using the resources you have. And not pretending to impose them upon the world. Like, you work on yourself. That is your job. The world will change if people work on themselves and you might need to work on the world as well as part of working on yourself but again it's it's very clear of the priority of things of distributing your your time your knowledge your wealth only after you are making sure that you are secure which is interesting because the jesus side of things with the chastity just reminds me of you were saying with like the the guarding it also well the unicorn behind the gate Hmm. of like an incredibly wild violent like unicorns have a very wild violent reputation they're not sweet animals and they are only tamed by the chaste um and the the unicorn being a metaphor for christ is often compared but like christ was born of a virgin so the unicorn comes out in this way and jesus the sword sword tongue moshiach that everyone expected to to come in and destroy the romans now becomes tamed because of the virgin birth and becomes about a connection in a different way laterally i suppose uh the lover's card uh with its saint Raphael over it and if you have not read Vanessa and Al's booklet, you should pick it up. Uh, there are not many sources of information on Raphael out there. No, not too many dedicated it's like the It's like the afterthought of the archangels that are most named, the biblical archangels of Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael. Well, he's a, he's a funny one in terms of, on the one hand, he's mostly apocryphal in terms of Tobit not making the direct, uh, not making the standard cut. Uh, the, the standard, release. you mean pro- Protestant? 
Uh, no, I mean a variety of cuts that are called standard by the ones handing them to people who can't necessarily read from a variety of angles. Uh, but he's also considered to be the archetype of the guardian angel itself. And so that idea of uh, even what angels are meant to do at all is informed by by Raphael. So he's both not specifically present, but his general influence is greatly felt, uh, which is an interesting kind of tension there. Uh, and one that produces all sorts of interesting stuff from his, you know, rulership of healing and medicine via his atronym to a variety of other things that could also, I suppose, be called various forms of healing, including exorcism, specifically through his uh, appearance, partly at least in the Testament of Solomon, but through a variety of other things as well, including the actual sending out of demons using specific materia as well. Uh, again, the fish symbol being very important the idea of curing blindness as in part an exorcism of that spirit of blindness mm-hmm. yeah I, the book of tobit has been in the catholic church since the 300s has never been taken out and it is local variants by protestants that took it out it is not part of the hebrew scriptures and therefore is deuterocanonical but i just fact checked it because i know the catholics are very big on those apocrypha and so it is those were book of tobit has always been there because the Feast of the Archangels is specifically, and, and Raphael has his own feast, so he has to be, since he is the only mentioned mm. there, has to have been. So you're talking about Augustine put it into effect, and it has been reaffirmed like every 200 years mm. of like the importance of the Book of Tobit, because of the arguments of scholars saying it's not in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the modern Hebrew Scriptures, so it shouldn't necessarily be in ours. But the Catholic Church has always said, nope, it's in. So I'm just fighting for Catholic Raphael there. And his October feast day, which is not celebrated anymore because of Vatican II. Mm. Uh, now, blame the prots. I'm not trying to incite a, a, a schism war, but it sounds like I am. Uh, I don't know if the, I think the Orthodox have always had Tobit as well, but Orthodoxy is uh, its own. It's very hard to ignore the fact that there's a giant icon that says Raphael in it, and there's far less <laughs> statues of, of Raphael than there are icons. There's some lovely uh, Mexican traditions that maybe you can speak to more of taking a general angel and putting a fish in its hand and then calling it Raphael. It's because the statues themselves, uh, New World Hispanic tradition of like you couldn't get marble the same way, you didn't want to import this thing, so you had people form figures that were much like the maquettes that artists use. Right. that had a, a generic face and they mm-hmm. were dressed in certain things. And it's like, okay, so who's the angel we're talking about this week? It's Raphael and he gets a fish ornament versus a sword versus a, a lily. Yeah. yeah. And so the, a lot of the saints, because you get uh, any angel can be Raphael if you add the fish. It's really lovely in that way. But uh, I think a lot of it's just uh, versatility in statue use and yeah. economy of space. Yeah. Of like, <laughs> oh, I'm all about that. Yeah. Um, I like the idea of converting a, a, a relatively blank could be a variety of other ones uh, to to a specific thing through, even if that's you know, a scarf or turtle shell repainting or a tur- turtle shell exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. some pizza Hermes um, mysteries there <laughs> and turtle power of course yes yeah. but uh, with Raphael there and uh, the patronage curiously uh, is also the angel perhaps due to the deuterocanonical reference is the angel that's left out of rulership of our herb. Angelica is often attributed to Michael or Gabriel, mm-hmm. but not to Raphael, which is strange because it's actually one of the more healing herbs out there, <laughs> right. but is specifically connected to Michael and Gabriel. So uh, Angelica, Archangelica, the Angelica often prized for its root, yeah. not its giant six foot cellular like stock and everything. Now in English, maybe you can correct me, you, you have better herb uh, more than I do and knowledge of the actual use of these things the it's distinguished from another plant called archangel 
Yes. Although it's also referred to as Archangelica. So those are those are two different things. So anyway. damn those common names. Right. But Angelica Archangelica is is the Angelica root we're all thinking of. It had that slightly celeriac celery smell. Beautiful when it's not chopped up. It's like a weird mm. little tuberances. Of, it looks like a shriveled sugar cane and white. I also like that it's called Aunt Jericho, which sounds like <laughs> an amazing superhero name. Yeah, for sure. Uh, oof, that's... And then you think of Rahab and the and the, the tumbling of the walls and everything too. <laughs> Angelica is an interesting one just because of its uh, medicinal quality. It's one of those herbs that's just put in everything if mm. it's if it's for for herbs, uh, magical or otherwise. It is uh, it's a biennial, which is always important because if you're growing it, just know that you harvest at the end of year one because it puts all of its virtue into flowering the second year. Mm. And therefore, its root is going to wither and die. It does not have the strength in the root anymore. So it's an interesting one because as far as roots go, oftentimes you can feel very sad when you're harvesting roots and like, but I'm killing the plant. But like Angelica is only going to live two years mm. and you better get to it that first year when it has the the, the true, when it's putting, after the first year, it's going to over, overlast the winter. So it's putting all of its strength into the root. And that's when it's, you harvest that in the fall, mm. first year growth. It is a, an herb that is believed to be from the Middle East as well and is anti-plague, uh, anti-poison, and blooms around Michaelmas. It blooms around this time of year. Right. Um, so there is a, the Feast of the Archangels heralds the blooming of this plant, and that is its own interesting thing. Yeah, it's specifically linked certainly by the time we get to the Middle Ages as, the, as being a plant that is shown to be effective against plague by by Raphael, by Gabriel, and by Michael. And there, mm-hmm. are, there are accounts of all of those angels being associated with it. There's a poem, uh, Love's Martyr, from 1601 by Robert Chester, which includes, which ends on the phrase, no pestilence nor infectious air shall do him harm or cause him to despair. There's a harp song that has almost very similar lyrics. That I, uh, That's lovely. Often attributed to the sun, which... Paul, things but solar and venusian still and uh fiery always fiery and there is a warmth to angelica um Mm -hmm. it is a warming action but is said to protect the ground where it is planted which is great and it needs a lot of seeds to be able to replant it will self-propagate and so it it does come back it appears that as if it's a perennial when it is not and especially after multiple years and saving seeds and offsetting the years you will get first year plants mixing with second year plants and the different heights and the different things of what they are it's often uh used as a talisman in its own right to ward off illness, keeping Angelica in the pocket. Making pendulums of Angelica is not unheard of, although it's obviously you hear things like orris root more commonly, which smells equally intriguingly. Like orris root has that lovely powdery smell, vanilla-ish, and then Angelica has this kind of celery smell to me is all I can smell. (laughs) People say it's lovely and you should put it in potpourri uh, if you like celery. Um, (laughs) But uh, the seeds, the problem with the seeds is that they're only viable for a few months. So oftentimes, I don't know how it managed to be both at the same time, mm-hmm. like how you can have first and second year growth, but it will self-seed, which is good. Also uh, said to be protective of infants and warding against the this the night women who come and steal the breaths of babies. So uh, interesting then in the kind of lover's triangle between an angel and the lovers and mm-hmm. the, the serpent around the tree yeah. felt to be good for exorcisms as well and the seeds can be burned as well as the root ground down and the powder of the root laid across doors during storms so you could prevent against storm witches and things like that there's a, a mojo bag using angelica to to protect a new baby 
It also includes althea and flax and rosebuds, I think. And yeah, protection, purification, quieting ghosts, preventing enemies from entering the home, uncrossing, uh, those kinds of things. It is. There's so many herbal actions recorded and so many uh, ways to use it. It is It is a, a wonderful herb tonically, but it is, like many things, uh, not recommended for pregnant women because it does cause uterine contractions. Mm-hmm. It is believed by some, therefore, advantageous. It's not quite an abortifacent, but it, it, it can cause accidental uh, contractions. Also, for uh, if you're trying to encourage a healthy cycle and encouraging the the blood flow in the period to go and also give the body a support system and tonically to support the healing of the body in its own way it's very good for and also uh high sugar content is the other contraindication for it so diabetics are felt best to avoid it one herbal i read also said that uh, some of it can look quite a lot like hemlock and so you should be careful there's a whole bunch from that that family of like the difference between uh, poison hemlock and Angelica and Queen Anne's lace mm. and the, that, that kind of delish yeah. family that it's going on. But the thing about Angelica, that smell is unmistakable. So as long as you're not breaking the stem of it and like rubbing the juice all over yourself to try and get the smell, you should be able to smell that celery. Yeah, because hemlock does not smell pleasant. <laughs> no, no. Hemlock has many signs of its but upcoming betrayal of your physic. <laughs> But I know that there is, uh, the, I know we didn't, because we didn't really do a Michaelmas episode, and this kind of is like overlapping with, yeah. which is interesting because it's the Cyprian through Michaelmas and then going through these other days. Hmm. Um, you know, Teresa of Lesseau is during this time period, and uh, we're heading towards Teresa of Avila and some of the other fantastic October saints. But uh, the there is a footprint in the north, I think it's in the north of Italy. It's definitely in Italy that is believed to be St. Michael's. Oh, yeah. And it's one of the place, ways that you can get uh, third-class relics of St. Michael because how do you get a physical relic from an angel right. if he has done the thing? Yeah, yeah. And then there's also the Church of the Annunciation where people will often say that even though Gabriel didn't touch the ground that perhaps you can cast a relic. I'm, I'm saying that in the RPG way of like create, craft mm-hmm. craft a relic from air at the Church of the Annunciation. In which he once floated. In which, yes. <laughs> Breathe the same breath. That, that Yes, because the air stays stagnant in yep. that place. But uh, just put lilies and it's all fine. <laughs> So uh, uh, lapis is the last thing we haven't really talked about, right? Right, right. And often we pick, I feel looking back at the stones that we've often uh, talked about, they've been things that have had very definite purposes and uh, magical purposes at that. We've done some pretty heavy hitters, you know, sapphire, rubies, emeralds, those kind of guys. And lapis, in looking at it, the I don't know, in, in casting about for research and things to think about and stuff, the main thing is it's the blue guy. It's the one for pigment, right? It's uh, it does turn up in in lapidaries, but not in anywhere near uh, as, as as extensive as, as some of the other things we've talked about. And so that's interesting in terms of you know getting at the actual material thing. Like, is it is it less magical because it has this definite actual thing that was used to definitely make actual things? Some of which are still about, and that we can still go and look at and point at and say, "Isn't that beautiful?" How the light goes through it in its glass and things. I think that you can use it as a bridge to talk about. <laughs> to rant about similar things from before of like kind of like a scientific materialism that steeps its way into magic of color is a magical thing. Mm. And we take it for granted now of blue is blue is blue, right. but there is nothing that makes the permanent blue of the sky. The way we remember it, the sky is not the color of lapis, but we say that it is, mm. or that lapis is it's, it's the true form of the sky. And that, that, it is that gorgeous blue that is the color of the Virgin Mary's mantle 
that is the color of virginity, the color of uh, associated with kings because it's a traded mm. commodity. Lapis, most of the lapis in the world exists in one geographic area of Afghanistan, Iran, and the, the wealth of those ancient kingdoms that were in trading lapis and the Egyptians not wanting to have to be trade partners with them and creating synthetic blue, Egyptian blue, early on to be able to have a pigment. And the notion of the magic of color is still intact in many traditions, but we've lost it a lot in the West. I, it's one of the things that I think the the Golden Gong gets criticized about. Yeah. And at the same time, like it's one of the more heart heralding back to traditional attitudes of color and the importance of opposite colors, the magic that happens when you look at red and green, that one color of the, the handbook of ritual magic, whatever it is, that has the planetary talismans on the front. And if you wiggle the book, the flashing colors make them float a little bit in that lovely optical illusion way. Yeah. But that it goes back to a doctrine of signatures that that, or at least the natural astrology where Mars is not just, and Mars is a great example because Mars is literally red in the sky, Mm -hmm. literally red as a planet and owns the color red. That is its thing. And all red things by their nature are tied to Mars in some way because this is its ownership. And it is, it is, it owns a little bit of the virtue of Mars, even if it's red and like a strawberry, like there it's sweet. So it's Venusian. Of course, Mm -hmm. it's a fruit. There's Mm -hmm. something there. There's it's white on the inside. So it could be somewhat lunar. It has tiny little seeds, which has its own, like the plenty of it could be Jupiterian. And sanguine, certainly. And yeah. And and then, then it's red. So when it's ripe. Bloody as well. And that's a source of iron. It's. Which it also moves. Right, right, right. It's, it's one of those things I think feel like we, we have those associations, but those are not symbols. It's not just correspondences that these are part and parcel of if you gather enough of these things in one place, you have a greater in- influence of Mars. Yeah. And uh, ontological instantiations, not simply. <laughs> that was a lovely, yes, thank you. Not simply a, a semantic pointer at something. Yes. Equally arbitrary. And so I think that there is something to reference there of like, is it less magical? In the sense that if you just think magic has no physical thing, that it's just symbolic psychology that you are using mm-hmm. to, well, sure. Mm-hmm. But the idea of, for instance, of, uh, I think we've talked about it before too. You you brought it up, I think, in one of the episodes of like the Yoruba use of blue pigment, which may have been a natural substance at one point, may have been crushed lapis, may have been many things, but ultramarine laundry synthetic blue is so vibrant that it, it has replaced indigo. It has replaced waji as this as the thing. So waji is an important ingredient because of its history of being a bluing agent. Uh-huh. It's still used for cloth. Uh-huh. But as far as a powder and painting statues, that vibrant blue is far more liked. And the color blue has an ashe, has a virtue that is being looked at, but there are ownerships of that blue. And I think that the more we can grasp onto that versatility of what a color does, to brightly paint something, to paint a room is instant transformation. Mm -hmm. And if we have a natural colored wand, it's lovely, but if you paint that wand lapis blue, you okay, you're like, okay, maybe this is a Jupiterian wand (laughs) in the Western canon. There Mm -hmm. are more than just the primal colors or the metals that we've all assigned to it. Iron is not necessarily always Mars. The Picatrix Mm -hmm. assigns it to Saturn and Jupiter at times. But it becomes this, I believe, I I could be a a stabbing through the air there. I know it's Saturnine as well. That's the case with lapis in general, that we have a wild Saturn definitely rules. And again, lots of astrologers don't like this, but there is a basic morphology of Green stones can be considered ruled by Venus. You know, mm-hmm. blue stones can be considered ruled by Jupiter. And on the whole, Saturn takes uh, dull, grey, black, or that which does not glisten, uh, dull or wan even, like so pale things as well, but primarily dusty, old, black uh, stones, but also lapis. Uh, and I wonder about the sky during the day and the sky at night. 
uh, for mm-hmm. those things in that lapis is not just a sky stone because we crushed it up and used it to paint the true color of what we'd like the sky to be, <laughs> uh, or or even that it references the sapphire throne of God or the tablets of Moses or anything like that, but that it has these gold specks in it as well. Thus, is itself a uh, a, a sky stone of sorts. What does lazuli mean? That's a very good question. Obviously, lapis is stone, but and is often the shortened name for. Uh, lapis. It's interesting. I mean, it has, it's not to say it doesn't have any quote unquote like standard lapidary magical uses. It's good for eyesight, as pretty much like, which is a common thing. If we think about the air and the and the sky, I guess that makes a lot of sense. Said to cure melancholy, uh, which I can see then bridging that thing of it's has power over a saturnine thing by cleansing it and thus is, this could, you know, be considered colossus straddling that veil between uh, Saturn and Jupiter. So, uh, quick reference, Lazuli, Lazuli, Lazuli. I have heard, I love, I love it when people say Lapis Lazuli. It just, I actually enjoy it. It is, it is, um, but uh, comes from a a Latinization of Arabic, which comes from an Arabization of Persian, (laughs) uh, which is the name of the stone and does have roots to being blue. So the stone itself is named for the blue color and then it, it promotes that Lazulum is etymologically related to blue for us and azul in Spanish ah. being a similar thing. So you, the correspondence there means blue stone. Yes, you're involved. Um, okay. So, yes. That's awesome. Which, uh, having watched a lot of Project Runway in the background as I do things recently, one of the makeup artists pronounces it as azure instead of <laughs> azure. And I'm all for alternate pronunciations, but the first time he said it, I was like, wait, what is, what? does it mean azure? Um, and anybody in the, anybody remember azure green? Uh, back in the old day, mail order catalog, Pagan Supplies, 90s. That was where you got your talismans and your bumper stickers and oh. stuff like that. Cracking, very, very quiet band in the 2000s, Azure Ray. Very sweet. Lots of songs about the devil and mice. Oh, and Lapis Lazuli, it, it makes me want to lowercase the second word as if it's a genus species relationship, mm-hmm. but it is not. Oh, should they both be capitalized? I think so. Okay. I don't know. I've seen it both lowercase. Both lowercase makes sense. It's just that in the capitalization of the first letter, does it warrant the second letter? Right. Like with herbs, no, never, never are you <laughs> supposed to do that as it confuses proper herbalism and makes us go back into a time where there are no scientific names. You have destroyed, you have made, Anarchy! you've made Dogs Linnaeus cry. Um, <laughs> that poor Finnish man, you have taken one of Finland's claims to fame away. And yes. So, and categorization is important. Nomenclature is important. This is how Cyprian rises to power of knowing the names of the, of the demons and the hierarchies of heaven and writing them down in a book and giving it to random people. Uh, you too can have the powers of the universe for 1195. <laughs> uh, Three easiest installments and one difficult one <laughs> yeah i've never heard that before uh okay so uh, i think we've actually wrapped everything together somehow we didn't like intrinsically talk about the lover's card other than referencing it a lot but in everything yeah, yeah. else it's been hanging there yeah i mean i think the gist of it is there it's card number six does not necessarily mean physical love but can and was Rupa. the twins at times gemini yeah yeah, yeah. gemini gemini <laughs> <laughs> That's prot Latin. Vini, wini wini wiki, as opposed to vini vini vici. Yeah, yeah. Uh, church Latin versus uh, reconstituted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably actually not a bad yeah, way yeah. to say it. Those, um, not from concentrate. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, but also the 
the arguments, right? Church Latin is an invented thing from the 1800s of like, let's standardize it because there's so many Latins now. Oh, yeah, and yeah. how do we knowing there's so many Latins? Because trains are fucking shit up. We have to invent time zones right. and standardize our Latins so that we can be recognized as actual authorities as mm-hmm. opposed to, I've never heard anybody say it except the freaking priest on Sunday, so right. it doesn't matter. Right. Uh, but I don't know. I, there's some permutations which... Uh, it's been thinking a lot in the feast days of Cyprian and Justina and moving up of the relationship between the two, the importance of the of the relationship between the two and what books are and what they allow us for and that age-old battle for me of context and transmission and authority. And it's that total, like, by the authority vested in myself, I now pronounce myself competent in the book I just read. <laughs> I think it's interesting as well that in some, uh, in most accounts, Cyprian you know, blazes through the ranks, you know, seven days after he's baptized, he's a reader, 12 days later, he's whatever, 30 days later, he's a a deacon. By the end of the year, he's a full priest and then becomes Mm -hmm. a bishop soon afterwards. And then is said to be on this, like, I use the word deliberately, crusade uh, of like converting all the pagans. And often it's said as a sort of afterthought, and Justina retires to uh, a convent and Mm -hmm. becomes an abbess. Mm -hmm. And this idea that she... Uh, she, she with yeah she withdraws <laughs> from the world and has her own and, and, and holds her dominion over a particular walled cloistered space and he is out in the world burning his books or giving them away or telling people that the you know he's got some great extra powerful magic stuff uh, in the back. Well, the side of it too of like come over here you're not going to be killed if we do this the future is now like we must have we can't we can't control the tide but we can ride it yeah. is an interesting interpretation of that whole thing too. And um, the discussion of, like, why wasn't Hildegard accused of witchcraft? Because witchcraft was not invented yet as a social crime that was feasible within the church. Because there was heresy. Right. And the church went against heresy. But in, the, in Cyprian's time period, there was no... He couldn't be accused of witchcraft. He could be accused of being pagan. But as soon as he declares allegiance to the church... And of, then, and of sending devils against people, because that's... The, because yeah, those devils are pagan magician, trespassing. Let's say. The magician and, is there. Right, right, right. But that... As long as he's a magician for the church, it's okay. Right. But there's no outcry against magic in that's, this that's way. The thing. It's like that poisoning thing, that beneficia thing. Like, you'd be arrested for poisoning someone, but the, the way in which you did that, whether it was dripping it into their ear or, you know, sending mandrake familiars after them, was means, <laughs> wasn't, wasn't the actual uh, crime. Yeah, so it, it, that, that side of it is always interesting, of, like, the philosophy of we can't control Hildegard. She's given all these weird visions. It's another September saint that we didn't get to... To perhaps next year, but uh, you can't control her, so you might as well uh, give her limited power and keep an eye on her and claim her as one of yours. Right. If she's drawing people, if that oak tree is not going away, if people are still going to it, <gasps> Saint so and so appeared in the oak tree. Mm-hmm. Like it is, you know, is it real? I mean, that's the syncretism there effect of like, how do we do this? How do we do this? And people will buy it because it is still answering to the needs. There's this analysis of spirituality that's like so predictable in some ways, and then other ways it like breaks the heart of what is true. Um, that was very ungraceful, Rat. Was it, it both was... historically and spiritually true? <laughs> um, my rat, spiritual father <laughs> is Abraham. And if we talk about spiritual and historically true, like if you're doing the grimoires and you name yourself as Solomon or as Cyprian in, like, in this legacy. Well, yeah. And there's the question. Are you claiming to be that person or are you claiming to be within their lineage and operating under the agreements of the pacts that were made. Well, thus the problem with the with the English verb am or the lack of such to be and other things right. of like, I am from, I am of in Spanish, the days of and from. And like, how would you say that? Are you of Cyprian? Are you from Cyprian? Are you, are you Cyprian? And as Cyprian. Yeah. Right, like, right, right. And I think that my, my issue is that I don't like it when this is brought up as a sign of how ridiculous it is to wear a paper crown and to pretend 
to be something that you're not and that this therefore also shows that spirits can't tell the difference between the thing and a, and a bad impression of the thing. And I, I, I think <laughs> that belies a complexity of what's actually going on. Uh, I think that undervalues uh, a sense of an actual appeal to lineage, which we get in plenty of prayers and conjurations and abjurations. By- we get in the Bible, we get in Gospels right. of the, the establishing the hereditary lineage of the Messiah or mm-hmm. other key figures. And, you know, the the idea that you can draw a crown and give that crown to a spirit and it acknowledges that you've given it a crown. Is it a blind? Is it a way around? Is it a duping the spirit? I don't particularly think so. I mean, like if you look, if you take a postcard, a picture of a place you went on your honeymoon and you refer to it later, it transports you back to what the original thing was. The crown is part and parcel of a larger energy of what crowning is and that side of it of well, I can't give you a golden jeweled crown that costs $5 million, but the fact of wearing something on your head, paper or not, I mean, paper is its own mystery that, again, because of its common variety now is really like discarded. The same way we're talking about color magic is a thing. So I don't know. It's interesting. It opens up a lot of other things. For sure. But I think think we've beaten this uh, no demon to death. So uh, we'll wrap up for today for the Feast of Justina of Padua and Our Lady of the Rosary. And Segundus Partus mm-hmm. of uh, uh, the Cyprian pairings here. May you all have a savior who brings you back to yourself and washes the hand that requires washing. <laughs> yeah, I think that the beautiful thing about the balance of Cyprian and Justina is that they're encouraging you to be your own savior, that to not lose the part of you that is innocent belief that is complete belief and trust in something to acknowledge what you are and who you are not in a hubristic profession mm. but to know who you are perhaps take the advice of 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 Otura and not be the squirrel that announces good and bad but like is it better to be underestimated and still be able to handle the things or to be overestimated because of the what you've told people right and not be able to handle the things that people are launching at you now it's interesting you know the the, the rosary is is a quintessential identity and it can be stolen and used as a talisman in many ways and lapis steals the color of the sky and angelica steals the fire of the angels and puts it into a healing place of balance in your body especially when combined with rose water real rose water though <laughs> and justina of padua steals the power of justina of antioch mm. and like there's an interesting thing here of like that's what in, in a way that's syncretism of the power flows the power must flow right the grace must flow. Put your hand inside the box. <laughs> What's inside the box? Syncretism! <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and with that, uh, fair Golgothites, uh, thank you for bearing with us and uh, exploring these lovely, 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 okay. These Britishisms. I will learn them someday and pretend I am a good something. Thanks, everyone. It's been a good one. And may your October be spoopy as you wish it. May you never feel as stupid as I do right now. 